Listeners, we have reached the third episode of Acamedia, and we realized shortly after posting the second one that we hosts forgot to introduce ourselves. So we need to first rectify the psychological crisis you were all thrown into last month from not knowing whose voices were filling your head. So I am Christine Becker. I teach in the Department of Film, Television, Theater at the University of Notre Dame. And I'm Michael Kackman. I teach in the Department of Radio, Television, Film at the University of Texas. All right, there. We solved that problem. Well, that's it's good because I was actually, I was in something of a state of psychological trauma myself because I kind of forgot who I was. Okay. Well, now we're all we're all set and ready to move forth. We're good. And uh, we are very excited about this episode. We've got three segments that were recorded at the 2013 Society for Cinema and Media Studies Conference in Chicago, Illinois, earlier this month. The first segment is our usual Cinema Journal Presents interview, wherein Georgia State's Justin Horton takes us through the world of film theory via Bazan and Deleuze. After that, we have an Acamedia on Location segment uh, at the Drake Hotel in Chicago for SCMS 13. And we'll end with another exciting interview, this one with the outgoing and incoming president of SCMS. In the meantime, we want to remind you about Acamedia Bites, our short micro-reviews of film, television, and other assorted objects. Chris, do you have a bite for us? I do. We have a lot of content in this episode, so we're just going to go with one Acamedia Bite segment, uh, but it ties in thematically because it was media I consumed right after SCMS. So here is my Acamedia Bite. On a shuttle bus heading home from the SCMS conference, a 90-minute ride in a public van, ugly concrete expressways, the only visual offering to occupy my attention for most of the ride. Perfect time for a podcast. I check my phone. I've got four episodes of This American Life stocked up. Perfect. My finger hovers over the Harper High School episodes, then keeps moving. I've heard that these episodes offer stellar reporting, but an in-depth exploration into the challenges faced by an inner-city high school racked by violence doesn't sound like the most prudent option when I'm seated elbow to elbow with strangers. But kid lives. There you go. How kids use what seems like perfectly reasonable logic to them, but which results in incorrect conclusions. Perfect. Sounds sweet and funny. And it is. Starts out with a cute story about how a little girl believed her best friend's father was the tooth fairy. Rolls into one on how babies are like little scientists testing on hypotheses. Like what you'll do if they keep throwing their food on the floor. It's going good and maybe even smiling too much for being among strangers, but that's fine. Then I get to the last segment. Act four, Ira Glass says. A few years back, Julie Hill's husband was diagnosed with a rare brain disease. And two years later, when her son Nick was six years old, he began trying to make sense of what was happening. Uh Uh-oh, I'm in trouble, I realize immediately. Little Nick logically asks, what if my mom dies too and I have to live all alone? Who will help me get to school? That's it. The tears are coming. There's no stopping them. The only question is if I can keep them from becoming sobs. It's okay to be sad and cry, Julie Hill tells her son. So I did. Decorum among strangers on a shuttle bus being what it is, neither of those beside me flinched. They just kept looking at the concrete expressway rolling by as I wiped tears away. But for that emotional experience, this American life, I thank you. Few media texts can make me equally smile, frown, and weep as you do in the space of an hour. Oh, Ira Glass is a devil. He is not a nice man sometimes. Mm, he really he sneaks up on you. He sneaks up. He does. You know, I wonder, though, if some of your traveling companions actually thought you were crying because you were leaving the SEMS conference. In that case, they were probably giving me the proper quiet time I needed. Yeah, probably. And, you know, they might have been sobbing quietly to themselves, too. Th- that's true. We were all in the same headspace, perhaps. All right. Well, speaking, then, of SEMS, uh, you have a interview that you uh, conducted at SEMS with Justin Horton. Yes, indeed. I hope you enjoy it. 
We're speaking with Justin Horton, a PhD candidate in the program in moving image studies in the Department of Communication at Georgia State University. He does work on film realism, sound studies, subjectivity, and embodiment. Justin, welcome to Acomedia. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We are going to talk today about Justin's recent article from Cinema Journal called Mental Landscapes, Bazin, Deleuze, and Neorealism, Then and Now. Justin, one of the things that I found really engaging about this project was the way that you made such an impassioned, spirited defense of returning to Bazin, mm -hmm. reclaiming him from his, his kind of place just as a foundational text mm -hmm. and instead arguing for his relevance as a, um, his relevance today for thinking about how realism works. Absolutely. Yeah, it's when I was, when I started the project, I uh, was reading Deleuze and the way he sort of rethinks neorealism and right from the beginning, he, he cites Bazin and Bazin, he, he says it's, um, if I remember the, the, to paraphrase, he says something to the effect of everyone got Bazin wrong that they thought it was a list of sort of uh, techniques, long takes, uh, using the non-professional actors, all this sort of stuff, when really it was a much more aesthetic question. So I went back in light of that and reread Bazan and found this isn't the Bazan that I knew and remembered from my undergraduate degree and my master's work. That this is there's something else here, and I started reading all the stuff that people have written recently. Um, you know, so Dudley, Dudley Andrews stuff, Daniel Morgan's rethinking of it, and I found there's a much more complex dialectical Bazan that, and I was and I started to read him against Deleuze, and so there's there's way more overlap here than I think is commonly. Noticed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a it's a really interesting it's a really interesting project, and the way that I especially admired the way that you very gently but very forcefully argued for essentially rewriting this intellectual history. And what you've done is not just reclaimed him as theoretically useful, but you've also essentially argued for a much larger historical significance for him as well. Absolutely, I and mean, I, th I think that. Most people know the ontology, the photographic uh, image. Most people know sort of the, the myth of total cinema. There are two or three of his theoretical texts that people, most people read in the course of their studies. But there was, um, uh, Daniel Morgan calls it the standard reading that everyone does. And it's all, it all come, becomes about indexicality and uh, the, that sort of the, the camera is completely objective and gives us the world. And that's mm -hmm. sort of this naive picture that everyone is sort of taught, it seems. Um, but if you read his later works, that's a notion that gets completely revised. Um, and in some points, it's even, it seems contradictory and conflicted, but he's working out over time uh, an ontology of film that is radically, radically different, I think, than what emerges in just those, that, the way he's excerpted, right? But those, those two pieces that everyone reads, there's more to it than that. And if you read through them all, or read them in succession, you see it just, it just, leaps off the page, mm -hmm. how much more complicated his, his thought really was. You do something really interesting in the way that you characterize Bazin and then use Deleuze to essentially start talking about a kind of realism of subjectivity. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, um, uh, it seems to me... Which that, seems completely incongruous, right? right? But, but that's exactly what Deleuze yeah, because, is talking about. Right, because we, realism is objectivity. The objectivity of a camera is what guarantees that realism. And it would only show us the surfaces and reveal things about the, the you know, empirically about this, the, of the world that's out there. But I kept thinking about this notion of interiority and where does interiority fit? And I think that 
that, that Bazan hits on that, I think Deleuze picks up that baton and runs with it and gives us some terms to really grasp with it. But, I, but it's, it struck me that there is a space for interiority in realism and that there's this psychical, mental aspect to it. And it's and so much, and particularly you know, Philip Rosen's rereading of Bazan, he's all about it. It's, it's, it's about the subject. And it's change the, mummified. Yeah, change mummified, exactly. Right. It's, it's the subject's encounter with the world, and it's just as much about the spectator's encounter. So I was interested in the way supposedly objective images work with subjects. You know, and, and that's where the, the Deleuze comes in with the notion of free and direct discourse. Can you explain that just a little bit further? Yeah, free and direct discourse, it comes from literary studies, and it is... When the enunciation of the text, right, it, it's coming out in an apparent third person, but nevertheless, we get subjective thoughts or subjective phrasings enter into it, but they don't show up in quotes or they don't show up with any sort of marker to suggest that the third person narrator has gotten inside the person's mind, right? It just sort of, it's like a rupture, momentary rupture in which we get character subjectivity despite it being in an objective presentation. So Pasolini takes this up, and Deleuze takes it up from him, a free and direct discourse, that film can do the same thing. That what happens when uh, we have a, a seemingly objective image, but it's as if that image is filtered through the consciousness of the person, of the, of the subject of the shot. So instead of it being a POV shot to give us subjectivity, um, you know, a, really, a really cliched example would be if a character's drunk or under the influence of some sort of drug and you get the wavy lines, that's it, right? That, that's a moment where the camera is showing us the world as if that character were looking at it, as if through their eyes, but except not in the point of the spot where they stand. So it becomes neither objective nor subjective, but the subjective colors the entire shot. And it becomes a moment where... It, it, it really fractures how we think about subjective and objective. And I think once you do that, the notion of realism almost flies out the door. You know, it's, it's, it completely upsets the, the way in which we think about it. Mm -hmm. Now, Deleuze entering into this conversation about um, realism and objectivity and empiricism doesn't necessarily begin with film, mm -hmm. but I wonder, what do we know about about his reading of Bazan? Uh, what we know, and again, Deleuze is in no way a realist, right? But he is anti-representationalist. Right. So for, for Deleuze, there is no ontological distinction at all between the real images of the world and represented images. So photographs, memories, dreams, all of it is image to him, right? It's all... Um, material for perception. So Deleuze makes no distinction. He doesn't care if it's material or immaterial. So that doesn't factor. So he, I, he would never have cottoned to the notion of realism. Mm -hmm. But I think that, that it's because, but I think it's because Bazan's realism is so far out there compared to what we really think that there is that overlap. Right. So he, clearly he had read, read um, Bazan because like I said, on the, uh, in Cinema 2, the time image, um, he appears in the first sentence and you know, he says, you know, against those who thought this is what Bazan is, he actually was talking about this. Um, and what's also interesting is that the cinema books, there's two volumes, the, the movement image and the time image, it's largely uh, not historicized 
but it is a historical rupture that separates the two volumes. And that rupture mm -hmm. is World War II and it's Italian neorealism. And this is precisely the same uh, historization that Bazan does. Mm -hmm. That Bazan says you know, that, that um, if, if you're going to cleave uh, the history of film into two, it's not the coming of sound. It is rather what happens with Italian neorealism. That's the moment when the cinema radically changes and shifts mm -hmm. and does something that it previously could not have done before. So I find it interesting that from page one of this book, that's an entirely uh, new way of thinking about cinema, uh, Deleuze immediately goes to Bazan and follows the one, one of the few historicist strokes in the entire two volumes is is line for line with Bazan. I mean, it's the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. So there is an allegiance there. Um, and Deleuze was, uh, was, was quite the cinephile, so I'm sure he'd, he'd read extensively, I'd imagine. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and Bazan finds fleeting reference throughout the book, but you can feel it. And you feel it, I think, there are similarities also in the sense that they both were, were devotees of um, Henri Bergson. Right, so that's their sort of shared lineage where you can really see the overlap between the two. I was wondering if you could talk us through your reading of David Gordon Green's 2000 film, George Washington, mm -hmm. which is the kind of final text that you use as, um, as an opportunity to articulate this. Um, what made you choose that film to talk about? It's been a film that I saw it in 2000, and it kind of has haunted me ever since. I liked it so much. Um, I'm from a, a small southern town. I recognized that place and liked it so much. Um, and I started when I started this project, it was actually for uh, um, a course. Uh, I was taking a, a Deleuze seminar with Angelo Restivo, mm -hmm. and I wanted to do this film thinking about Deleuze's rethinking of neorealism because everyone identifies George Washington as a realist film. But the fly in the ointment for that is this really strange ending. And when I would look through the reception of the film, it never gets mentioned. Um, and it's like, when I was thinking in more traditional terms what neorealism is, I'm like, this doesn't work. This, this almost would exclude it from being considered realist. But then as I started reading, rereading Bazan, reading him against Deleuze, I started to realize this, this strangeness is actually precisely the moment where it lifts off in, into the stratosphere and becomes a sort of really kind of Deleuzean realist thing. And so it was, uh, I, I consider that ending, primarily the ending is what I look at, and I try and reconcile it at, within a realist paradigm mm -hmm. by pointing to this stuff about the, what I call it hallucinatory, right? It gets, it gets so utterly strange and breaks with everything we consider to be realist. Like, mm -hmm. The film to, the, to that point had relied on long takes, non-professional actors, um, yeah, it's got of, the laundry list of yeah, every, cinematic techniques. Every, exactly. Everything we think about when in, in sort of the textbook, intro textbook of this is what neorealism is, it does all of that, yet it also does this. And it almost becomes impossible to reconcile that ending within that film uh -huh. using that language of realism. Mm -hmm. so can, was, can you explain... Can what, you just explain how that ending works? I know the scene you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. At the, so at the end of the film, we have our primary character, um, George. He witnesses a car accident, and he, he's dressed in uh, hero regalia. He's using a wrestling singlet and a, and a sheet to make a cape. He's always fancied himself a hero of some sort. Mm -hmm. So he shows up on the scene, and, and, the, and Green shoots it from a low angle where he looks like the hero swinging into action. And then, but just as suddenly, he takes off and he's running, turning his head to look behind him as if someone's chasing him. 
and then inexplicably, um, a news crew is following after him. He falls and collapses against a wall, and then we get another shot of that, that news crew has been replaced by a film crew with a boom mic, and then we cut to a moment of him being interviewed about his heroism, and then we cut away from it entirely, and it's just this, this you know, four or five minute scene that is mm -hmm. so strange. And I was stunned that no one brings up this strange ending. Right. It's almost like you have to skip over it or disavow it to to talk about the film's realism and its you know sort of poetic beauty and everything like that. But that, that uh -huh. was the, the the sticking point. I was like, I need to figure out what's going on here. And I think the the Bazan Deleuze connection kind of brought that out for me. Right. Right. What is it about the child as as maybe not as protagonist, but as witness, as source of our subjective realist experience of a, mm -hmm. of, a, of a story world, so compelling. Deleuze argues that it's because the child is more capable of hearing and seeing, that because mm -hmm. a child, I guess, doesn't have as great a sense of agency as do adults, they're taken places, they're told to do, and right. most of the time what a child does is stands, watches, and listens, and that's how they appropriate so much of the world. That's how they learn is through mimicry and listening. So I think it's that the child becomes a figure of curiosity and sort of an intensified looking at the world and uh -huh. listening to the world, um, and that's what uh, Deleuze identifies as what happened in Italian neorealism, right? So instead of the stuff about working class poverty, he singles on the fact that what happens in Italian neorealism is suddenly we have characters who are arrested, who cannot move. Uh, some, they've been traumatized to the point where all they do is look and see. They mm -hmm. become, instead mm -hmm. of a, a cinema of doers, he calls it a cinema of the seer. Mm -hmm. That suddenly it has changed our, uh, it has changed the protagonist's relationship to the world where suddenly they look at it anew because everything prior has, has shifted. So the child becomes sort of the privileged figure in Italian neorealism pretty much, and through a lot of films, right? right. That, the, that the child becomes the eyes. And, it, and it, I guess in a way it kind of maps on to the invisible spectator, sort of maps on to us because the child just sort of looks on and people forget the child's there and they say things and do things and that and the child sort of soaks all that up. So right. in a way, they, I think it makes a good surrogate for the audience, I uh -huh. suppose. I was thinking quite a bit about Beasts of the Southern Wild. Right. Well, I in, haven't seen that yet. In regard to this? Oh, well, I'm, I'm, I wish you had, <laughs> but no, that's okay. Well, there's a similar kind of... Um, there's a real tension in that film where you have an awful lot of the sort of superficial signifiers of neorealism. Mm -hmm. um, Non-professional actors and handheld camera and location shooting and long takes and this sure. kind of stuff. But also this very intensely subjective, I guess more magical realist sort of um, experience of this world. And it's all filtered through this young girl who mm -hmm. becomes the, you know, she's our, she's our window into that world. And it seems to be very much about her subjective experience of that world, which is somehow a more realist experience too, right? It means this, sure. this realism of interiority. Absolutely. Um, well, I think you're going to have to see it. Yeah, no, I won't. It's, it's, it's on the list. I was so disappointed about it come Oscar time when I hadn't seen it. You know, yeah. I tried to watch a lot of those films and didn't, didn't get to it. But yeah, it's, it's, it sounds, from what I've read and the reception of it, it seems to be performing something very similar to what George Washington is. 
Um, and I think that's what's interesting. You know, but again, the magical realist angle, that's the thing I found so intriguing about Bazan is that he puts Fellini in the neo-realist category. Right. And it's like anyone who can accuse him You have him to of, deal with that. Yeah, right? yeah. It's like, so if you're going to call him a naive realist and an empiricist, it's like, but what do you do when Fellini becomes part of his neo-realist canon? Right. And so that's... I, that's why I think that were Bazan alive today, he'd look at a film like Beast of the Southern Wild, and I, I don't know what what he would have thought of it, but I, I don't think that would have um, been a deal breaker for him. Right. You know, I think that, that that's the sort of thing that is completely in line, and I think that's his interest is in sort of interiority, mm -hmm. um, in, in in ways that I think haven't commonly been acknowledged. Right. I think you're going to get a lot of people to go back and do some rereading. Yeah, that's the you know Dudley Andrew and Daniel Morgan and a lot of these guys. That's what I read their stuff, and I was like, "There's so much more here, and it's yeah. so much more uh, nuanced and supple, and applies to more things than we think." And, and I think that's the continued relevancy uh, of of Bazan. And and again, uh, Dudley Andrew's recent collection, Opening Bazan, they, people go back and reread some of his lesser read stuff, or they completely reappraise these canonical essays and find all of these threads that make him sound proto delusian that make him sound um, at times like Benjamin. Uh, mm -hmm. you, you find all these resonances. Yeah, I was you wondering see, about that. Yeah, so it's so, he's such a much more complex figure mm -hmm. than I think he is given credit for, by and large. All right, Justin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate it. My heroes. My heroes are the man that invented the steam shovel, Chubby Checker, The Untouchables, Dick Allen, Will Be Free, Great Wall of China, Uncle Sam, and the President of the United States of America. What makes someone a hero? I think a hero should be wise, strong, and very talented. They should also have a list of dangerous and poisonous things. What makes you a hero, George? I'm a hero because I like to save people's lives. Stuff like that. Great interview there, really took me back to my grad school days of reading Bazan, um, and also my experience of watching George Washington, which I've too always wondered about in terms of it getting lumped in as realistic. I've always thought of it more as a lyrical, poetic film. Yeah, part of what I really enjoyed about my conversation with Justin and about his article was the way in which he articulated the relationship between what we think of as a more conventional realist mode and that kind of lyrical, expressive, magical realist narrative technique. Mm-hmm. I had been especially interested in talking to him about Beasts of the Southern Wild, partly because in the interest of full disclosure, that's a film I'm a lot more familiar with than George Washington. Have you seen Beasts? Uh, no, full disclosure, I have not. Okay, well, <laughs> we're, we're all <laughs> describing an elephant in the dark. Beasts of the Southern Wild does seem like a, an especially apt, more recent example of the kind of realist mode that he's talking about. But it's a complicated film, and for a lot of viewers it brushes up against a kind of discourse of the authenticity of poverty that is a little unsettling. Mm -hmm. This becomes one of those interesting examples where I think it's 
fruitful to think about the kind of crosstalk between formalist modes of analysis and more cultural modes of analysis. Right. Well, that actually seems to, one thing I really liked about the interview was just in talking about the idea of revisiting something you've previously read and rethinking it and reshaping it and putting it into dialogue with other ideas. And so I think that's something we can, you know, that's really great to sort of launch from his his writing is to continue to talk about that, uh, which reminds me, this would be a good time to plug our website, which uh, actually has a comment section of people want to continue discussions in relation to any of our segments. So that is aka-media.org. And so uh, if you want to talk more about that segment or any other, yeah, head to the website and add some comments. Please do join us there. And again, thanks to Justin Horton for this article. I think one of the signs of an engaging piece is that it makes you think about larger questions. And and this certainly does that. All right, great. Uh, So next up is a segment, a little experiment I wanted to try out at SCMS 13. What I wanted to do was track the SCMS conference experience of two people, one person attending uh, his very first SCMS conference and another one attending uh, one in a long line of many SCMS conferences. So uh, let's give that a listen. My name is Juan Llamas Rodriguez. So I'm originally from Mexico, from Monterrey, Mexico, and I moved to Toronto to pursue my BA. And now I am in my second year of my MA in Film Studies at Concordia University in Montreal. Well, my name is Heather Hendershot. I'm a professor of film and media at MIT, and uh, I do research on children's television and also on conservative media culture. Previously, I've attended maybe a couple of graduate student conferences. And last, what was in November, I attended the Flow conference. When I was at Flow, I kept hearing people say, oh, this is so nice. It's so much smaller than all the other conferences and we can get to talk more. And I thought that it was huge. So it was hard to decide between four different panels that I wanted to attend all at the same time. Now that I have 25 different panels that I could attend at the same time, I'm kind of having a headache trying to schedule what I want to go see. I believe that the first SCMS I went to was in 1993, and I went to SCMS while I was studying for my orals, which might sound a little bit crazy. I probably should have just been at home reading, but I was reading so many different interesting things, and all of these ideas were flying around in my head, and it was the best possible moment to go to SCMS and talk to people and hear the ideas that were flying around in their head, and it was rather small in those days. I seem to recall that uh, the competing panels at the same time were maybe four, somewhere between four and seven, and uh, it was still very hard to choose. I'm apprehensive maybe of no one coming to see my paper. One of my profs basically said that his first paper, he presented to one guy who then later admitted that he was in the wrong room, but he felt too embarrassed to leave. So I was like, well, it can't be worse than that. So I think it'll be fine. At different points in your career, there'll be moments where you are looking for papers that are the same thing that you do, and uh, other times when you go and you're just kind of radically reaching out your tentacles in every direction to experience new things. So the experience is, uh, is different, I think, every year, depending on where your, your research interests are at. Uh, so the paper I'm delivering on SMS, it's on a project that I've been working on for the past year, and it's on narco cinema, which are um, films about drug traffickers in the Mexico-U.S. border. I'm currently researching a book on Firing Line, which was a television series that ran from 1966 to 1999, public affairs discussion show hosted by the famous conservative William F. Buckley Jr. So that is the work that I will be presenting on at the SCMS conference this year. 
Well, have we got a snow on the way? More than 80% of our winter snow has occurred in the last four weeks in Chicago. And the trend continues. It's the winter that turned on all of a sudden. We have some flurries. Welcome to the drink. Initial thoughts in the first like um, four hours that I've been here. It's it's so intimidating, like I thought it would be. Uh, it's big. You have to run around to get to all the different rooms. There's 20 things going on at once. Uh, you're sitting in a panel, and then everyone else is tweeting another panel, and you're not really sure if you're, that's the panel you should have gone to. Um, there's just going through the hallways. It's really interesting seeing all the people that are just just waiting. Just they're just sitting in the, in the floor, just sitting in all the chairs. Not really knowing anyone just yet is interesting in the sense that I can just walk through and see that these all of these people are at the conference, but I don't really know any of them. Well, of course, one of the greatest things about SCMS is seeing so many old friends. Um, and the longer you go, the more old friends you have who are there. Um, and it can almost be overwhelming. And uh, this this will sound uh, uh, this may sound a little goofy, but if you remember the Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode Earshot, you know where she hears everything in everyone's head, <laughs> um, and it, she's just like it's too much stimulation, and she kind of loses it. Well, it's not quite that bad, uh, but there's this feeling like you're walking down the hall and you're like oh hello 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 hello, and you try to say hi to everyone, and it's sort of impossible to to pull off all of the drinks you'd like to have with people and and lunches and dinners and stuff like that. In terms of the receptions, well, the main reception I was packed, so that was an interesting experience in not moving for like five minutes. Uh, the smaller receptions have been great, easier for, for me to meet people and um, get to talk to them. And it's good also to see the different snacks they have, very themed snacks. I went to the UT Austin one and they had like little tacos. Linda Williams has distinguished herself by, to modify a popular song, looking for meaning in all the wrong places. <laughs> As a teacher and mentor, Linda has helped many of those in this room today to join our ranks. She stands as a genuine pioneer in the creation of our discipline, and it's my honor to introduce her today. <laughs> my advice to those of you beginning your careers is to find the thing you most take for granted and then to question it. Forget about trends and fashions. Don't try to imitate your mentors. And when you become teachers, don't try to reproduce yourself in your students. Further advice, which turns out to be the key to absolutely everything. Revise, revise, revise. Let other people tell you what's wrong. I think, personally, it's necessary to have a certain amount of healthy self-loathing to write well write many, many drafts. I read what I write, I hate it, and I hate myself for writing it. <laughs> but somehow the self-loathing motivates me to try harder the next time and the next time. And then sometimes, every once in a while, even though I won't usually admit it even to myself, there's a secret feeling that maybe, as Ernest Hemingway once put it, you are getting the words right. There's no greater excitement. It's like getting away with something. So far, I haven't really met any of like um, super established scholars that have read all their books. Mostly, I think, because I'm a little intimidated to go up to them. And uh, I have no other line than like, I've read all your books and you inspired everything you've done. Um, so I think that's sort of been pulling me back. I And one of the panels, I was sitting next to Lucas Hildebrand. 
and he was wearing the exact same outfit as me. So uh, I like had to tweet that. I was like, oh my God, he's wearing the exact same outfit as me. But I didn't uh, get the courage to say hi and be like, we're wearing the exact same outfit. So maybe in the next few days, I'll get up the courage to actually talk to any of these scholars. But otherwise, it's just been great like sitting in the audience, hi uh, hiding and but seeing them like interact with other people. Welcome to the annual members business meeting. I'm Chris Homeland. I'm SCMS president. I'll be outgoing June 30th. First speaking will be our next president, now president-elect, and this year's program chair, Barb Klinger, at Indiana Bloomington. It's um, lovely in many respects to be able to see the diversity of the research and work that's going on across our membership. So um, in terms of statistics, we had a record number of proposals this year. There were, um, if you want to know the exact number, um, there were 12,000, 12,000. That would be record. That would be, uh, that'd be very interesting. Um, 1,244, 12, so 1,244 proposals. Now it sounds like a really little number. But uh, it, it was, uh, for us, it seemed like a very large number. And that's much more than um, any conference has had before. In terms of acceptance rates for pre-constituted panels, our acceptance rate was 83%. Open call acceptance rate was 61% um, and workshops were 66%. More than the, almost half of our membership is here. We have about 3,000 members, so we have um, a very healthy selection of our membership here presenting. And I'm, you know, needless to say, very happy about that. Thanks, Allison. Whoa. <laughs> Hello. My presentation today centers on two connected educational media artifacts, the television program Firing Line and the four-part film strip series, William Buckley's Firing Line, The Black Revolution. I will examine how black power was represented in the two very different um, venues. These films about drug tra traffickers is not just a topic within the films, that they're not just about drug traffickers, but that they're a particular genre, a body of films that represent a genre with specific cultural and sociopolitical ties, and that this genre also points to both the circulation, its potential audience, and the political implications of the films themselves. The panel that I participated on on conservative media was uh, was was a big hit. I thought we had a really nice crowd. We had a lot of good uh, uh, Q and A after the presentations, and all the presentations fit together really well. And for me, that's one of the uh, things that stands out for me uh, at this year's SCMS and also last year's, when I was also on a conservative media panel, is that there's now room at SCMS to study conservative media. There's more people working on that area. And, you know, I think uh, 10, 15 years ago, if you were presenting on, say, you know, uh, right-wing talk radio, Fox News, um, it was, you, you weren't going to be put on a panel with other people working on similar material. And, of course... Uh, all for the program committee, bless their hearts, they work so hard and it can be very hard to get all the papers uh, properly matched up together and they do a very good job at it. But conservative media was something that was kind of hard to fit anywhere because there were fewer people in the field working on it. And now I feel like we have enough critical mass that we can really put together panels that um, cohere very strongly around, around this, you know, similar thematics. I think the paper went really well. Um, I started off a little nervous, um, which is my usual, but then uh, got a little better, more comfortable, and then um, I saw that 
people were coming in at different times, so I was glad that there was a good amount of people uh, when I gave my presentation. This is NYU Press's booth, and all of our books are 50% off. It's our last day. Now, Albania has been doing some very interesting things uh, as a small cinema um, and other things, human rights organizations. It's really a good one. <laughs> no, I think it is legal. Don't you really? Yeah, well, I don't know how it is legal. I think definitely it's illegal if you download it. No, I guess in many ways it was a very typical, interesting SCMS with a very wide range of work. Uh, more and more, you know, sound, radio, TV. Every year, uh, the expansion of the M seems to happen increasingly. It was too big. I think I did feel like at times it was really big. And I guess being overwhelmed that there's way too many people, um, not really sure if you know anyone slash if you can start a conversation with someone. So that's something that everyone probably goes through on their first time. I am looking forward to uh, future SAMS. And actually going once, I feel like the second time I'll know more people. So that sort of feeling of intimidation will slowly dissipate. So I came back and the Monday, three of my colleagues just said, like, how was it? How was it? And I, I was just explaining everything. And everyone's just wide-eyed being like, oh, this is so cool. We need to go next time. So I think everyone's trying to scramble to create their own panel um, and have more chances of everyone going next time. So I am really looking forward to that. And I will try and keep going, if not every year, at least every other year. snippet at the business meeting there from outgoing SCMS President Chris Holmland and incoming President Barbara Klinger. We wanted to hear more from them um, as far as the past and future trajectory of SCMS. So I sat down with them on the second day of the conference and we ended up with what I think SCMS members will find a very informative conversation. I'm sitting here with uh, Barbara Klinger and Chris Holmland. Um, one is the uh, outgoing SCMS president, one is the incoming SCMS president, and so welcome to Acamedia. Thank you. Thank you. Thrilled to be here. All right, fantastic. So uh, we're just going to talk a little bit about your roles as SCMS president and some of the initiatives that are um, important to SCMS and, and to its members. So I first of all wanted to start, um, especially to kind of, I think there are things members don't know about, and I think one of them might be, what exactly does the president do? So I thought I would start this question then with Chris. If you can first describe what the role of the SCMS president is, what duties and responsibilities come with this position? They are many, and it is a great honor to be elected, and it's really fun to keep meeting new people. I think the role of the president, um, for me, principally, is to provide services to the members and all the member groups who currently are housed under the SCMS rubric. There are many of them, as we know. Um, and it's also to oversee the activities and facilitate the activities of the board of directors who are elected and some are permanent non-voting members like Jane Dye, whose praises cannot be sung enough in my book, um, keeping a sense of strategic planning, the organization's needs, what the past has been, how to move forward, I think is the general gist of what I would say the president does. 
And so you're finishing up your term and how many, how long was your tenure? Well, as I went to see my department head, when I first got elected, I said the total term is six years. You serve two years as president-elect, two years as president, and two years as past president. And his response was, that's longer than some marriages. <laughs> um, so, But it's just two years as president with one year doing what Barb has done now as president-elect, where you really get to know a lot about the organization additionally. So, you know, Barb may want to add in here. I, I'm just, I'm, a, I'm on the road to discovery of everything the president does, because I've been so wrapped up in doing the program committee chair work from September through the beginning of March. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm refocusing now on what it will mean to be president in a few months. Mm -hmm. So I'll have more to say about this on another occasion. All right, we'll follow up with you yeah. on that and exactly. see how that went. Well, we can then you know, ask that question of you right now, Chris, as far as what do you feel like were the most significant developments in SEMS as an organization under your guidance? So the past you know, number of years, um, what are the hallmarks, do you think, of what your legacy will be as SEMS president? The legacy. The legacy, yes. You are always working as a part of a team. So before I can talk about my legacy, I have to say it's built on top of the work of a lot of people who came before me and with whom I currently serve. I carried on some of what Patrice Petro had begun with strategic planning. Also with her um, term as president, she had switched us to the new website with the help of a lot of people. So that's just gotten redesigned and that's really exciting and that's going to be an ongoing design project because that's what a website is, right? It changes, it shifts. Um, I guess I, I, I tried to think about the different groups within SEMS. So something that members didn't know, but one of the people who are really important to us are the presses. So last year we had a special workshop for them because they wanted to know about copyright and digital publishing and fair use. So we brought in some experts to talk with them about that, and we read, led a little webinar on it for them. Um, we just recently instituted member discounts on presses, building off that goodwill. So you can get year-round discounts. We're going to roll out some more after the conference as well. Very exciting. Um, we have increased the number of institutional and U.S. affiliated organizations, which I'm thrilled about and would like to see even more happen. Um, and we have raised the number of travel awards to uh, various groups, grad students, underemployed, diversity organizations, and we've started a new SCMS undergraduate conference, yes, which I think maybe Chris, you should say something about sure. Let me turn the question on you. Oh, all right. The interviewer becomes the interviewee. Um, yes, it's a, a fantastic initiative and essentially an undergrad version of what we already do in SEMS with the big conference. And so we um, have uh, 30 speakers, 30 undergraduates who are coming to, to deliver papers. And uh, it's just a really great way, especially for SEMS to underscore that undergraduate education is a big part of what we all do and to then allow our undergraduates to experience 
experience some of the things that we do. So I think it's a really exciting initiative. So then I guess I'll throw that over to Barb. Then what do you hope to kind of extend or build on that um, has already been started by previous presidents? What kind of goals do you have in mind for the future? Yeah, um, I, I, you know, like Chris, I have to acknowledge the work of the people who came before me. We've had, this organization has seen um, some incredible people step into the presidency and hats off to all those, all those folks and everything they did to bring the organization along. When Chris was talking about the strategic plan, that's something that uh, Patrice worked on for many years and Chris inherited and has been working on for many years. And that's basically a, a way to recognize what is making your organization work. How, you know, what's the financial profile? What's the organizational profile? What are the duties and responsibilities of the people in the organization? So that I guess you'd call it a process of clarification about what exactly is going on inside the um, organization and with the membership. So we did a membership survey and other you know, used other sorts of tools like that. And I we're nearing the end of that process. And one of the things that remains to be done that's significant. Um, besides upkeep on everything we've gotten, you know, underway, is um, we're thinking about hiring an executive director mm -hmm. and someone who would be a, a, a central um, location for a lot of the planning and work that both the president and the and the board and the staff does, and sort of a centralized um, job position that would help make us better. I think. Um, more efficient and give everybody a chance to be a little more creative than just sort of nose to the grindstone kinds of, of issues that have to be dealt with. So one of the things I'll do is continue working on the strategic plan and um, work on hiring an executive director, so hiring a new um, kind of official in our organization. And what that will allow is for us to turn to our board members who are fantastic and, and start, and, and not that this hasn't been done before, it has, but really start to think about projects they would like to see the SCMS undertake. And I'm already starting to work with one of the board members on, on an issue like that. Um, so, so to really allow um, more the, the free flow of ideas and in, inspirations about directions that people on the board and um, the, you know, the officers of the board would like to take the organization. Always, always um, with uh, what our membership wants and needs in mind. And that will include continuing work on uh, building the social media aspects of our website in particular. And so the, there's that continuity there of things that are already off the launching pad. And then um, you know, I'm looking forward to new ideas from our board members and also from, you know, from me <laughs> as we go forward. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually solicited some questions from Twitter followers about things that they might want to ask you, and I found one very interesting. It was, you know, are, are there any things that you would want for SCMS that you would change if you could, but you're unable to? So I was really interested in that question. In particular, there might be other organizations that do things that SCMS isn't able to, to do. Um, and so I was wondering if you had any response to that about, you know, things that would be great for SCMS but just won't, won't work out for various reasons. Um, one of the things I would like to do, and, and, I, and it's figuring out the logistics of this, and, and I'm not reinventing the wheel here either, but I would, I would love to see um, the SCMS become more internationalized. And, and part of that, you know, we've, we were approached by having the London meeting and then the Tokyo meeting was, did not work out for various reasons. And so it's not just about changing the conference location. 
Um, but it's about internationalizing our membership, about affiliating ourselves more strongly than we already are, because this is underway, with organizations abroad. And um, a, lot, a lot of people have been talking to me about organizing one-day symposiums or two-day symposiums in parts of the country where we have sort of um, upcroppings of SCMS events. You know? So it wouldn't all be the central conference, but also these, these sort of um, international outreach um, uh, days of inquiry into an issue in the field, for example. Um, so I would love to do that, and it's working out the logistics of that um, from all ac across the board that, that makes that a real challenge. Mm -hmm. But um, we do have a greater number of international members. We have more people participating internationally in this conference than I've seen, and I got close-up view of that as, as chair of the programming committee. And um, more um, topics that are international and in focus, and so that's one thing. There are many things, but I'll turn the, I'll turn over to Chris here. Yeah, I, I, what people probably don't realize is that our membership is closing in on twenty five percent international. In fact, three thousand members, roughly total, almost half of whom attend the yearly conference. It's just great, and I walk around since I know Swedish and French and little bit of Spanish and just say, and do the same thing in French. So, I mean, it's just, it's really exciting to see that um, in terms of, I think, what SCMS does that's different than other organizations, like ICA, for example. We're really a humanities-centered organization. We are the studies group of film and media studies, and we really like that. And and we feel that we are ours is our unique voices. I can never just say voice anymore because there's so many of us. Um, but if there's one thing that I would have loved to do, and I think that Barb really feels this strongly too, it is supporting lectures, adjuncts, more than we are able to do. We have only two full-time staff members. We are a volunteer organization. And as everyone in SCMS knows, no matter what discipline you're in, this is a problem that affects all of academe right now. But it is just heartbreaking. And we really welcome people to join in and work on with, with scholarly interest groups, with caucuses, um, on awards committees, on annual committees, submit your application. Say you want to volunteer, we'll be in touch. You can get another line on your CV in this way. We can at least help in that way, and you'll be helping us, and you'll be making contacts for yourself, networking with people who are more senior or are working elsewhere. You mentioned the the idea of sort of it's really gratifying to walk around the conference and hear you know different languages and so forth. And we are here at the uh, the Chicago 2013 conference at the Drake Hotel. Um, I was wondering then what particular aspects of this conference reflect principles that you think are important to what the core of SCMS and these other annual gatherings are about. Like what would you point to happening right now in the next three days that are sort of about what we do here and why we do it. One answer to that is um, since the SCMS became the SCMS years ago, um, that we're seeing a greater uh, representation of papers on media 
um, from drone, you know, surveillance to um, you know Legos and and various various things like that. And I think that the range of media that we are able to approach through critical and cultural um, uh, meth methodologies of various kinds and diverse perspectives is a strength. Um, not only of the people doing the work, but the way that that feeds into the organization that I think has a nice reciprocal effect between the organization and the, and the people who participate in it. So that's one thing I think it makes us, um, I, I don't know if I would say different, but the fact that we're so Catholic with a small c in our embrace of media. And that's something I think we want to see even more of as time goes by. You know, both the embrace of that, but also just like the energy and discussions and all that. There's such a wide range of conversations happening at this conference and it's really invigorating. I mean, some, some people are troubled by the fact it's gotten heterogeneous, but mm -hmm. I don't, uh, first of all, how could you possibly stop that? And second of all, why would you want to? Um, and I, I, I see exactly the same thing you do, that there's the diversity lends itself to energy and uh, a broader kind of intellectual inquiry that's good for everybody, mm -hmm. as far as I'm concerned. Oh, yeah. I, I wholeheartedly concur. And adding in the international and local voicings to those discussions, there's a richness and a depth to and a breadth to SEMS now, I, I, I was talked last night at the Alex Doty Memorial, and so I looked at the statistics of how big the conference was in 1991, 471 members. And now it's over 1,400 pre-registered. So it, you know the conversations just have got to have mushroomed. What do you foresee then as the future of conferencing? There's been a lot of talk about the conference model as fading, as being you know economically unsupportable, and as SEMS gets bigger and bigger, that becomes more of a challenge. Um, some groups are experimenting with online panels. We actually had a panel streamed today, the um, social media panel streamed. So what do you think about these developments? What do you foresee as maybe the future of conferencing for SEMS? Um, first of all, I like the idea of having um, streaming panels in the context of a geographically located conference and bringing in scholars who otherwise might not be able to be here. I, I think that's an interesting idea to experiment with. But when you walk into, when I walked into the hotel when I first arrived yesterday, and the place is just bustling with energy, and then you walk around the various arteries of the hotel, and it's exactly the same way, I can't, I mean, I, I get really excited and happy when I come here, and there's all of that, um, all of those conversations and those face-to-face -face interactions. And it's, you know, it's by now the face-to-face -face versus the virtual. I mean, that kind of um, debate is going on. But I don't think there's any question that the geographically located conference at a site in a city um, gives us a kind of um, uh, not just professional identity for everybody there, but also um, a level of intellectual and kind of intellectual conversation that would be very, very hard to have in a large-scale way online. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think there's still a real place for the, the cited, the S-I-T-E-D, the cited conference, while experimenting with, um, with the kind of um, Skyping and, and doing other things to bring people's voices in. I like that idea, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And again, it recognizes the diversity of people, and uh, generations is part of it who come to SEMS. So it's nice to have as many possible voices in the mix, I think. And not just the, the, the sort of the 
to use the French, the chaleureux, the, the warmth of face-to-face communication is really important. Speaking of face-to-face con- uh, communication then, um, you, uh, Barbara, or excuse me, Chris, are about to pass the presidential torch to Barb. So I'm curious about if you give us a little insight on what kind of advice you're going to pass on to Barb, any warnings you might include about any aspect of this job or how it affects the rest of your academic life or your personal life or anything like that? It's certainly time-consuming, but Barb knows that, mm-hmm. and she certainly knows that I will do my best to help her out. It's a it's a team game, but a lot of it's on the president's shoulder. There's no question, because um, you have to be the front. You're the front person, in a way. Um, I have every confidence that she's going to do a stellar job. Uh, we have you know, somewhat different styles, but we're good friends, and she's somebody whose friendship, our friendship dates from SCMS. I mean, it's just it's one very of the true. joys of SCMS is that I've made lifelong friends here who are colleagues as well. And and, and I'd, I'd say, too, that, you know, they're, they're the presidents. Here we are, you know, um, and there'll be a new one soon, you know, at the end of March, a president-elect. And um, the fact is, is also very true that we have a very um, highly participatory and loyal and wonderful group of staff members. And they provide the kind of continuity that these various elections and and turnovers, I think, would otherwise create a kind of chaos. But there's a lot of continuity. There's a lot of support, both from the staff members like Jane Dye and Debbie Rush and and Leslie Lamond, and also from the board members, who are wonderful. So when you take the whole organization together, it really is, um, I I think, it, it makes the president's job easier to have so many good people to work with. And I'm not just saying that, believe me. I've been here long enough, you know, in my one and a half going on two years that I've, I've seen the organization through a new lens and it's been very, um, both very encouraging and very supportive. Mm-hmm. It is really supportive. Yeah. Or the group has been supportive, the not the lens, but the group. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, I'd like to think I've started an SUMS relationship now with both of you yes, as well. Right. Um, and I appreciate you taking the time to talk to Acamedia. And have a fantastic rest of your conference. And thank you for Acamedia. Yeah, we, I'm a fan. (laughs) All right, fantastic. Glad to hear that. Thank you, Chris. All right, thank you. So in the interview there, you heard uh, Chris Holmland mentioning the changing SCMS website, and I got to talk at SCMS to the person tasked with implementing those design changes, Aviva Dove Viban. So uh, she took me into the inner workings of the website, and you will get a chance to hear that in our next episode coming up in April. As we wrap up, we'd like to return to the SEMS Award Ceremony. Linda Williams was the recipient of the Distinguished Career Achievement Award, and she gave a really terrific talk there. The full audio of Linda Williams' talk will be on our website at aca-media.org. But in the meantime, we were quite struck by this small segment. In 1966, when I was still an undergraduate, I saw at the old Cinema Guild where um, Pauline Kael was doing the programming, I saw a screening of Un Chien Andalou, and it seared into my eyeballs and woke me up to the power of film. What was that slit eyeball all about? Why slit an eyeball? That was my first luck because I remembered that film later in my life. Part of what we found so engaging about this moment was the way she captured that sense of wonder of responding to a particular image or a film or some other media text early in her development as a scholar. 
And so what we did at SMS 13 is we turned our microphones on many people we came across and asked them that very question. What text inspired you to study media stuck in your brain early on in your career or your childhood? Uh, so we got a lot of really interesting responses to that, and you'll be able to hear those in the next episode. And we'll also have another Cinema Journal author interview to look forward to. But that wraps it up for this episode. Acomedia is produced with the support of ISLA at the University of Notre Dame. And with the production help of Bill Kirkpatrick and Todd Thompson. And thank you to all who participated in our segments this episode. Justin Horton, uh, Juan Yamas Rodriguez, Heather Hendershot, Barb Klinger, and Chris Holmland. I'm Michael Kaffman. I'm Christine Becker. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.